This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning. Today we are talking about spooky stories, scary stories, and everything that you might be able to use in the classroom with your students to celebrate this Halloween. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, hello, a happy Saturday to everybody who is tuning in. It is a perfect um, setting for my show today. I'm just looking out of the window here and it is grey, it is windy, it is threatening to rain. I don't think it is raining right now, but it is threatening to. And I think it's a perfect atmosphere for us to enjoy some spooky stories. It's what, uh, it's what, those who study literature might call pathetic fallacy. This idea that the weather in a in a, a book, in a film, in any piece of, of media predicts the the show that is to come. Hopefully this is only for the stories that uh, I'm going to share with you today and not because anything is going to go wrong with the show. I'm sure it's going to be a perfectly good show. This is the end of my first week of half term. Um, I am very thankful that I get that I get two weeks, and so I've been able to put a lot of um, a lot of research into the show today. I've been able to kind of explore some different spooky stories in preparation for today, which has helped me to get into the mood. Um, I really like this time of year, which I think is is well two reasons. I think I, I like to be a seasonal person. Um, I really miss when we used to do a calendar curriculum where everything that we used to do was driven by the time of year it was. Um, I thought that was lots of fun. Um, and I always thought that that festivals and things that were coming up gave a nice hook into lessons. We don't seem to do that very much anymore. Um, as an MFL teacher, as a classics teacher, I do sometimes hook into different festivals around the world and and relate, relate my lessons to those. So, you know, I do a, a Saturnalia lesson in Latin and in classical civilization towards the end of term two. Um, I do Krampus with my German students. Um, the lesson is closest to December the 5th. Um, you know, we try, we try our best. I do pancakes for Chandler for Candlemas um, in February with my French students. So I, I, I do try, but I think Calendar curricula have kind of fallen out of fashion lately. And I do understand why, uh, particularly in the UK, and I think it ties into the second reason why I love this time of year. And it's because we actually don't have very many festivals in England. Um, I mean, I was thinking about this this morning um, while I was setting the show up, and I thought we have New Year in January, of course. Then we have Easter, 
in March or April. So we already go three, four months with nothing really of note happening. Then we have Halloween in October. So we've gone April at the latest through to October, again, with nothing really to celebrate, nothing really going on. And then we have a lot of festival in quick succession. So we've got Halloween, which is Monday. Uh, then we've got Bonfire Night, which is on, I think it's next Saturday, Bonfire Night. I hope it's next Saturday because my plan for next week's show is a Guy Fawkes extravaganza. Um, then, of course, it does go quiet a little bit until the preparations for Christmas begin. So the majority of our festivals, certainly in England, occur within the next three months, really. And so I like this time of year. It's, it's packed with things to do, uh, with things for us to experience, with things for us to celebrate. So that's what I'd like to do today. We are going to celebrate, not celebrate Halloween, not really, but to celebrate the things that we can do, that we might like to do to, to get us in the mood, to prepare us for Halloween, to, to kind of bring about those, those spooky feelings that so many people enjoy. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Saturday the 29th of October saw a so-called March of the Mummies, according to an ITV news report. Hundreds of people campaigning for improvements in childcare and working conditions for parents took part in marches in Manchester and 11 other cities. The march was organised by campaign group Pregnant Then Screwed, who say that the UK has some of the world's most expensive childcare. The group believes that children in the UK are being born into poverty because parental leave is not well paid enough and a lack of flexible working conditions is forcing parents out of the workforce. A spokesperson for the campaign group said research suggests that employers are desperately trying to find highly skilled people to work, whilst hundreds of thousands of women who desperately want to work can't. In response, a government spokesperson said, the government is committed to supporting working parents and helping them participate and progress in their working life. The UK has one of the most generous maternity leave entitlements in the world. 
they went on to highlight the recent consultation on making the right to request flexible working a day one right for all. More than £7.5 million has been announced for the extension of mental health programmes for schools in Northern Ireland. Education Minister Michelle McKilveen announced funding continuation for the Engage 3 and Healthy Happy Minds projects. Ms McKilveen said that the feedback from school leaders and staff was that both programmes had been invaluable in helping to support pupils across all educational settings. Both schemes were created to help alleviate the impact of the pandemic on children and young people. Durham University students have queued on the streets overnight to secure a home for next year, according to a report from the BBC. Lists were released and hundreds lined up outside of estate agents in the city, with one student saying some showed up at his current accommodation for a viewing in a panic for next year. The university said it had anticipated pressure on the private rental market and increases in rent and was giving the issue urgent attention. Durham Students' Union described the city's housing market as broken and claimed that increasing student numbers were putting both welfare and education at risk. First year undergraduates in the city have guaranteed accommodation but have to find their own housing after that. The university is encouraging students to contact their college if they are facing difficulties. TES magazine features a story from Scotland as a teaching watchdog raises child protection concerns with the government. The General Teaching Council for Scotland says its role protecting children is being adversely affected by police failing to share information. A judge ruled last year that critical evidence should be shared by police. But the GTC for Scotland says the change has been slow to take effect. New figures also show that the GTCS fitness to teach process has also been hit by the pandemic, with the average time taken to close a case increasing to 249 days during 2021-22, compared to 113 days the previous year. The GTCS is responsible for investigating and making decisions about Scottish teachers' fitness to teach and says it relies on agencies sharing information and making referrals. Police Scotland's Assistant Chief Constable responded by saying that child protection is a priority and no child will be put at risk of harm. The GTCS has recently come into criticism for its handling of child protection cases. The full article is available via TES magazine. Professor Alison Beverstock has been awarded with special recognition at the Soldiering On Awards 2022 held in London recently. Professor Baverstock is the founder and director of the charity Reading Force, which promotes shared reading within Force's families. The UK's 130,000 Force's children typically face ongoing challenges such as disrupted education, uncertainty and parental absences. The Reading Force project was designed to promote family connectivity through books, as well as raise higher education aspirations, engagement and transition. The Soldiering On Awards recognise the achievements of those serving in the armed forces as well as those who support them. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about buying a laptop, a question I get asked 
all the time. So this is what you need to know if you're considering buying a laptop for yourself or a loved one. First up, it's physical shopping versus online shopping. My only advice on this is consider how much you're saving online. If a device goes wrong and you bought it from a shop, you can take it back. Online support will usually require you having to post the device back, which can be a bit messy. Even if you buy online, it's always good to visit a shop and actually see the device. I use these few tests to help me decide on a laptop. First, what is it for? If it's for gaming, then you need to look if it will run the games you want to play. All gaming machines will tell you how they perform with popular games. Pick your game, and then it will just be a balancing act on how much you're willing to pay. More expensive usually equals better gameplay. Screen size is my next decision. If I'm going to be taking it places, then a smaller screen will make it easier to fit in a bag. If you're using it a lot, you might want a bigger screen. Next, I try the G-Test. This is incredibly technical. It involves pressing the G on the keyboard and seeing how much the keyboard flexes. This is a good indicator of build quality. More robust designs will flex less. Sometimes this is a factor I use to decide between two models that are equally powered. If you're a bit of a DIY computer geek, then see if you can upgrade the hard drive and the RAM, etc. Some top-end gaming machines have a cheaper model and bar a small amount of graphics speed, simply have more RAM and a bigger hard disk. Next up is the operating system and the life of the device. Pretty much every device will have a point in time where it's not supported anymore and will Stop upgrading. It won't stop working, but you'll no longer be able to keep up to date. Sometimes a device with a shorter upgrade life will look appealing because it's cheaper. However, in the long run, it won't last as long. Will a reconditioned computer suit you better? A second-hand or reconditioned machine will usually be considerably less. After all the other checks, have a look at the keyboard. The spacebar, if not replaced, will give a good indicator of the amount of use the machine has had. With new or old, feel how hot it gets. Some laptops run hotter than others. This can be uncomfortable if it's on your knee. Look where the power socket is. Will it be an obstruction in your favorite chair if it's leaned on regularly it can be broken finally don't be dazzled by flashy lights and gimmicks at first you notice them they'll soon be a part of the furniture there's no such thing as a bad machine nowadays there are lots of machines purchased though which are not fit for purpose as always feel free to send your thoughts to at tt radio 2022 i'm steve woods and that was two minute tech two minute tech with steve woods your tech briefing on teachers talk radio Okay, so before I share my favorite uh, spooky stories with you, um, I just want to think about some considerations we need to give when using these sorts of things in the classroom. For me, the most important one is remembering any restrictions that might exist due to the children who are in your care. So I, for example, have explicitly already today linked this show to Halloween. It was inspired by the fact that Monday is Halloween, um, I quite enjoy this time of year. I like the spooky season and I'm quite happy to, to say that and to, to broadcast that on air. However, it's important to remember that there are specific religious communities for whom the celebration of Halloween is forbidden. And in that case, you need to be very careful about how you might approach doing spooky stories at this time of year. Because obviously, if you have a student in your class who belongs to one of these religious communities, you probably would not outwardly say, right, today we are celebrating Halloween. But you also have to consider whether doing spooky stories at this time of year without even explicitly making that connection could make them feel uncomfortable or could raise questions from the parents. It's always a good idea, of course, depending on the setting that you're in, depending on the parents that you that you have, just talk with them and to see what the, they are comfortable with. Talk with the student and see what they are comfortable with. Um, I remember many years ago teaching a Jehovah's Witness student and it just so happened 
the, in our year four scheme of work at that time, um, there was some Gothic literature that occurred just before October half term. And so I thought about the timing of that and um, I just went and met his mum out on the playground one day and I explained what was going to happen. I explained what was in the in the scheme that we were following and I checked that she was happy with it. And she, you know, she said it was. And I think even though it was no big deal, she appreciated that I went out to check. Uh, so it is really important to just be aware of the context of your classroom as with as with anything that we do. One of the things that I wondered as I was prepping for the show today is why people enjoy scary stories. Why do we like to be scared? So I did did some research. Uh, friends of the show will know by now that I like to research. I like to I like to know what I'm talking about. Um, and I found a, a list of things by Glenn Sparks, PhD, who is a professor at the um, Brian Lamb School of Communication at Purdue University. And he explains in, in layman's terms, um, terms that I could understand, why we tend to like these spooky stories. And there, there's a list of four things that he came up with. And the first I find really interesting, it's something called the excitation transfer process. And according to, to Dr. Sparks, when you watch a scary film or when you read a scary story, your heart rate increases, your blood pressure increases, your breathing increases. And when that film is over, those physical sensations remain. That in turn intensifies any positive emotion that you might have afterwards. So if, for example, you've gone to see a scary film with a group of friends, or if you are sitting with a group of classmates in, in a class that you've got um, good cohesion with, and you go through that, that physical excitation process, hearing the scary story, and you then have fun afterwards, you are going to remember that fun. That fun is going to be more heightened. And so you're going to associate the hearing of the story, the seeing of the film with the fun experience that you had afterwards. That's the neural link that your brain will connect. You won't actually remember the fright that you felt during the film, or during the story, you will remember the fun that you had afterwards. And that got me to thinking about when I was in primary school. Uh, we would always end the day with a story, and it would usually be a story and then a game. So we would all settle on the carpet in front of our teacher and be read a story, and then we would play heads down, thumbs up, or something afterwards. And when I first went into teaching, and I was teaching primary, I did something similar, just thinking that you have them in front of you on the carpet, they're listening for 10, 15, 20 minutes just to you. At some point, that's going to get a bit boring, no matter how exciting the story is. And so the game then gives them something to do afterwards. And, and in my head, that was probably how my teachers justified it. But actually reading about the excitation transfer process, it made me wonder whether my teachers were playing uh, a little bit of a psychological game with us and we're having us associate the fun that we had playing the game afterwards with the physical feelings we felt having been read that story in an attempt to make us associate reading with fun. Now I don't know, I don't know, I could have been right first time and it was just to get us up and moving. Um, you know, I can't, uh, can't pretend that I'm in my year three teacher Mrs Jones's head, but 
I do still enjoy reading. Um, I'm actually not in touch with any of my classmates from from primary school anymore, so I can't see whether that's something that that followed through with everybody. But I know certainly for me, I do associate reading, I do associate stories with fun and with excitement. And so maybe at least for me, that excitation transfer process worked. On the flip side to that, the excitation transfer process can also be why some people don't like scary stories and horror films. Because if you go out and you see a film or you you read a story and you then have a negative experience while your physicality is heightened, then that's what you're going to remember. That's what you're going to associate. So let's just say you've been out to see a horror film with a friend, you're driving home after the film and you get in an accident. Instead of associating the, the, the positivity of being with your friend with the film, you're going to associate the feelings of being in the accident with the film. And that then is going to give you a negative spin on horror, on, on spooky stories. So that is something for us to be mindful of if we're choosing to use spooky horror gothic literature in the classroom. Because there are children who may not like these stories, not necessarily because they're easily scared, although many children are, but because they've had negative experiences during that excitation transfer after having done something outside of school and so now make those those negative connections. I don't know how easy that is to undo. Any um, any psychologists who might be listening in, please do feel free to text in if you're on the Podbean app or, or uh, tweet me. I'm at Mr. D. Lester and let me know how easy it is to unpick, to undo those experiences. Um, you know, it might be that if we share a scary story in our classroom and then do something fun afterwards, we can we can override that negative excitation transfer process. But it's also something to keep in mind that if we are causing this heightened physical reaction or within our students by reading the scary stories, by sharing the gothic film, whatever it might be, make sure that you build time into the end of your lesson to do something positive, do something fun afterwards, just to make sure that you have that, that positive association because that negative association is too easy to build in. Sparks also says, his second point, is that people are just wired differently. So he says that some people enjoy the adrenaline rush that comes from being physically scared while you are hearing the story and while you are watching the film, whereas others don't. And it's just to do with um, how your body reacts to it. There's the novelty factor, he argues. He... He says that we are all wired to pay attention to anomalies in our environment. I guess that's part of the the survival process, back from when we were being hunted by saber-toothed tigers or whatever it might be. Um, Danger disrupts our routine, and so curiosity about danger, curiosity about change is important for survival. And so because, unless you are an avid horror fan, you probably don't see a horror film, you don't listen to a horror story every day, then seeing one, hearing one, disrupts that routine. And I think that's why so many people get into um, the horror genre specifically at this time of year. I've seen it quite a lot on YouTube lately, how the um, the booktubers that I like to follow tends not to read horror during the year, 
Um, I follow lots of people who like to read young adult and middle grade books so that I can keep up to date with with trends in, in children's publishing. And I've noticed that many of them don't gravitate towards horror during the summer, <clears throat> excuse me, during the summer, during the spring, but they will at this time of year. And I suppose if you are just dedicating the month of October or maybe mid-October into mid-November to horror, then that novelty factor remains and it is, it's more interesting for you. Finally, and I find this one quite interesting, was the concept of gender socialization. So there was a 2020 survey that suggested that men tend to enjoy scary stories and watch scary films more often than women. And Sparks speculates that this is because men are socialized to be brave and to enjoy threatening things. And so it might be that amongst groups of men, amongst groups of boys, there is a social gratification by not being bothered by a scary film, a scary story. Now I've seen this. Um, my The favorite part of my year in year nine French is sharing Gothic stories at the end of the year. I do a whole unit on Gothic stories in French. Um, we look back on the, um, the, the mythology of Gaulish France, and I tell them a lot of the, the scary stories that are associated with that mythology. And a few years ago, I had a group that was just boys. And prior to that, and subsequently, when I've had mixed gender groups, um, there's always been a mix of reaction to it. There's always been the, the students, boys and girls, who have been willing to say, yeah, actually, that was quite creepy and to start to speculate on what might be happening next. They kind of really were able to throw themselves into it. Whereas what I noticed with my my group that was just boys, it was not designed, the group was not designed that way, it was just how the, the option blocks fell. Um, I noticed that they didn't get into it. They weren't speculating. And there was always a big show at the end of each story about how they, they didn't like it, they didn't think it was scary, uh, they thought it was a bit babyish. And, and at first I wondered if it was just bravado, which I suppose feeds into this. You know, they didn't want to show that they were scared in front of each other. And that kind of, that socialization, that social gratification about not being bothered by the, the scary story um, was what they got out of it more than the story itself. Whereas in perhaps in the mixed gender group, um, where that social gratification isn't so important because the, the um, gender differences are more apparent, perhaps they are more willing to let themselves be involved. Again, I'd be interested if I've got any listeners who teach in um, single-gendered schools, in a, a boys' school or a girls' school, and you do gothic, you do spooky literature. I'd be interested to see whether you think that gender socialization has an impact on how you teach those stories and how your students react to it. Because I think there's a lot that we can unpick there. There's a lot that we can look at there. Um, yeah, there is also, and I thought this was quite funny, there's also something that is called the cuddle effect which apparently is where men like to use scary films as date films because 
women are more likely to seek physical closeness when they are scared, which again allows men to show off their strength and bravery. Uh, this is according to a study done by Cantor. And so again, I, I guess that kind of fits in where women and girls perhaps are socialized to be scared by these things and to seek out that closeness. And then men and boys are socialized to be, in inverted commas, brave and to enjoy those threatening things. And so uh, they are then performing those socialized gendered roles. There are, of course, also people who are just more sensitized to scary stories, more sensitive to them. We talk a lot about desensitization. I can't say it, about not being sensitive to gore, to horror, because our children play so many games, they watch films that are above the appropriate rating. So we see that they are desensitized to violence, they might be desensitized to horror. But in the same way, we do have students that are adults who are very sensitive to that sort of thing. And so they, again, they might not like those stories. Obviously, in the classroom, we are not showing 18 rated films. We are not reading um, things that are gory, things that are inappropriate for our setting. But even within, um, even within media that is appropriate, media that are appropriate for our setting, there will be students who are more sensitive to those things. And again, it's just about knowing your class. It's about understanding why uh, children react the way that they do. So I thought that was really interesting, thinking about why people like and dislike scary stories. I'm, to be honest, I'm not sure where I fall. Um, I, I like supernatural stories. I like fantasy fiction. Um, I do enjoy some horror. I think I'm not a big gore person. Uh, for me personally. That said, I do like The Purge. So I don't know. I actually don't know where I fall on the spectrum. Um, I think that I'm not a horror person, but I think I probably do enjoy it more than uh, than I think I do. Next thing that I did while preparing for the show was I picked out the stories that I wanted to share. And I've noticed that the vast majority of those that I'm going to share, I think all but one, kind of come from the Victorian period. Now, there is a, a practical reason for that. Um, it's because I want to share stories with you today that are in the public domain. And um, in the UK, copyright expires 70 years after the death of the author, in the case of, of books and stories. And so a lot of the horror that we have open access to is, of course, Victorian or slightly later. And as teachers, we do have to take copyright law, copyright rules into account when we're planning our lessons. Uh, we do in education have a little bit of leeway over copyright compared to other, um, other professions. But we must still make sure that we are respecting those copyright rules, that we are respecting the copyright laws. Uh, we don't have free reign to just reproduce anything that we want. So do make sure that you are checking the copyright on anything that you might be sharing with your students. Again, if you've bought a resource in, 
you know, if you've bought a class set of books, if you've bought a um, a pack of worksheets, then they will come with their own information about what you can photocopy, what you can scan. Um, don't assume that you can scan and store things just because you're allowed to photocopy them. Because I've noticed in some books that I've been writing lately, uh, when I've looked at the copyright information that I, I as the author don't have any control over, that's down to the publisher. Um, I've noticed that a few of my books say that the worksheets inside can be photocopied for class use, but cannot be scanned and stored. Uh, so do be careful, do just double check that. So I've got practical reasons for sharing mostly Victorian literature with you today. But as I was thinking about it, I thought about how so much of the Gothic literature that we have at the moment comes from the Victorian era. Um, I noticed, I can't remember whether it was last Christmas or the Christmas before, we had a lot of remakes um, of Victorian short spooky stories. Uh, and it seems to be you couldn't turn BBC One on without there being a, a gothic Victorian uh, miniseries to watch. And so I, I started to look into that. I did some, I did 19th century literature, uh, 19th and 20th century literature as part of my degree um, part of my English and classics degree at university, uh, but we didn't really touch on on Gothic literature. Uh, Tim has texted in. Good morning, Tim. Always nice to hear from you. He says something that occurs to me about classic Gothic literature is how many of the female characters, uh, such as Jane Eyre, the governess in The Turn of the Screw, the second Mrs. Danvers in Rebecca, for example, experience most, if not all, of their terror in a domestic sphere. Their contemporary male counterparts get to feel the fear in a variety of settings, which suggests to me a correlation between adventure stories for boys uh, of the era and domestic stories for girls. Uh, almost like literary gatekeepers were saying, girls can be spooked, but don't leave the house. Now that's really interesting. That's really interesting. Because I talked about modern socialization just now, but we do need to take into account this idea of contemporary for when these stories were being produced, socialization. So, you know, it's it's important to remember that if we're looking at Jane Eyre, if we're looking at Daphne du Maurier, these would have been times when the domestic sphere was one that was uh, ruled by women, owned by women. Uh, and in fact, at the end of today's show, when I share my favorite story with you, um, it's actually a, a Roman ghost story. And in ancient Rome, it was the, the mother who ran the house. It was the mother who was in charge of the house's finances. It was the mother who was in charge of how the slaves were deployed. It was the mother who was in charge of the interior decoration. The whole of the house was run by the mother. And so it is interesting that, uh, that you point this out to him, and I hadn't thought of it, that so much female horror in a time when the running of the house was considered the role of the woman does take place in that in that domestic sphere and I think the lens through which we see it is interesting I'll I'll touch on this again when I talk about Lovecraft a bit later through a modern lens we can look at it and say okay well the women are being confined to the house so they are experiencing their fear but they can only do it in this one specific context. But I wonder if, on the flip side of that, we might also argue that they owned this context 
And so it's about them experiencing fear in a place that they should feel comfortable because they're in charge. I don't know. I really don't know. It's something that's really interesting. I would be interested a little bit later on to fall down a rabbit hole researching this and kind of looking particularly at uh, contemporary views about whether it was a case of the women were, were trapped in the domestic sphere or whether it was a case of attempting to reflect society like Charles Dickens tried to do and paint a realistic picture with Gothic elements. And so we have the women in domestic sphere because that's where they were. Um, or whether it was seen as a positive thing. I, um, I really don't know. I really don't know. What I find most interesting, though, is that the Victorian era is seen as this kind of beacon of secularization. I can't say any words today. Um, you know, we had uh, Charles Darwin publishing his Origin of Species in, in 1859. We have um, the increase of, of scientific study the increase of the importance of science. And so even though the Victorians as a whole still attended church on Sunday, there, there was still a religious undercurrent to their life. They were becoming increasingly secular. And I think it's very easy to see the Victorian period as almost a second enlightenment, an, an increasingly secular society. But what we also have to remember is that there was a counterculture to that. There, there were revivals in evangelical churches um, across England particularly and then as a counter and, and that existed as a counterculture to the increasing scientific um, outlooks the increasing scientific enlightenment because there were people and there remain to be people who believe that science and religion cannot be cannot be mixed and then as a response to that, we have more and more people dabbling in the occult. Uh, we have mesmerism becoming a, a, an interesting pastime for people. We have an increase in mediumship. And of course, again, these days we look at the people who, who put on seances and we say, oh, well, they were charlatans, they were swindlers, they were just out to make some money. Because those are the examples that we have. And while it might be true, that that could have been the motivation for these people um, putting on these shows. The people in the audience, by and large, went because they believed it. So there was an increasing, or if not increasing, maybe a steady belief in ghosts, in life after death, that, that the Victorians did find fascinating. Now, I've kind of put this in, in opposition. I've put science and religion and occultism into opposition of each other here in kind of like a triangle. But my actual belief, what I actually think happened, is that all three of them worked together. So I think as, um, as the Victorians increasingly turned to science to explain what was happening in the natural world, as they increasingly um, explored evolution and everything like that, they attempted to put a scientific lens onto natural phenomena that we still can't explain. 
So I think that there was a scientific curiosity in Victorian times about death, specifically, and about what happens afterwards. And I think rather than the medium shows, rather than the occultism being a counterculture to the religion and the science, I wonder whether it was an attempt to, to marry everything together and to go, well, well, death is this thing that we can't explain. And there are these stories that date back into our past about ghosts, about, you know, people coming back. And they applied that scientific curiosity to what they, they knew, what they believed to be true. Whatever the reasoning was, and, and this is something that we can only ever theorise, and it was probably different for lots of people, uh, we, we have to accept that the Victorians, the Edwardians, they were fascinated with the occult. They were fascinated with these, these spooky, scary things. Um, science parlor magic was a thing. Um, I've got open on my computer right now. I'll tweet it out later for anybody who is interested, but a pamphlet that promises to teach its readers how to perform magic tricks. Um, it cost a shilling and it was written by a man calling himself Professor Anderson. And so he's using professorship to give an academic um, credence to what he is saying about these magic tricks. There was the rise in, in mesmerism. Charles Dickens, in fact, believed himself to be a mesmerist. He believed that he was quite talented um, at mesmerism. Psychic and occult sciences um, became a, a study. Spiritualism, mediumship, as I have discussed, became very, very popular. People would go to watch table movings. They would go to watch seances. And literature reflected this. If we think most famously of, of A Christmas Carol from 1843, it was a huge success. It was a huge success even when it was written. And it is still probably one of Charles Dickens's most well-known books, at least for people who don't read Dickens regularly. They will think about A Christmas Carol. And I think the, the, the spookiness of it, particularly juxtaposed with the jolly Christmas revival, is one of the things that made it so popular because it tapped into what was at the time the Victorian zeitgeist. It tapped into what the Victorians found interesting. So that, I think, is why we have so much Gothic um, and, and spooky literature coming from the Victorian and the Edwardian era. They were fascinated by this sort of thing. Many of them thought that they shouldn't be dabbling in it, particularly those who belonged to the evangelical Christian revival. You know, they, they believed that they shouldn't be exploring these things. But through writing literature and through consuming stories, you can explore these things that interested them in a way that was safe and perhaps in a way that they could justify. They weren't conducting seances themselves. They weren't dabbling with magic themselves, but they were reading about people who were, and they could kind of sate their curiosity that way. The first story that I'm going to share with you, and I'm sure that this is why you are all here, is by a, an American writer called Ambrose Gwinnett Bierce. 
he is somebody that, quite honestly, I have never heard of, um, which is another thing that I find really interesting about this genre of, of story, because you encounter these writers who are actually quite famous in their own right, but who are perhaps not well known, either because of the country that they are from. So, so Ambrose Bierce is an American writer. I'm, I'm in England. Um, I don't believe he's particularly well known over here, unless I've just missed his, his oeuvre entirely. Uh, but he wrote a lot. He was prolific in his writing. Uh, and he wrote across a whole range of genres. He wrote satire, he wrote journalism, he wrote short stories, he wrote war fiction, he wrote fantasy, he wrote sci-fi, he wrote all sorts of things. Um, and it's been quite interesting to to explore his work and to explore his life. And, and quite interestingly, if you go on his Wikipedia article, there is a portrait of him posing with a skull, um, which which I quite liked. Uh, the story of his that I'm going to share with you is called Charles Ashmore's Trail. Now, to save you having to listen to me, read out everything, to give you something a bit more interesting to listen to, I do have an audio version of this that I'm going to play for you. This comes from LibriVox. Um, we are not affiliated with LibriVox at all. This is not an advert for them. It is just the open source um, audiobook provider that I could find. So here is Charles Ashmore's Trail, written by Ambrose Bierce. Charles Ashmore's Trail by Ambrose Bierce. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Dale Grothman. Charles Ashmore's Trail by Ambrose Bierce. The family of Christian Ashmore consisted of his wife, his mother, two grown daughters, and a son of sixteen years. They lived in Troy, New York, were well-to-do, respectable persons, and had many friends, some of whom, reading these lines, will doubtless learn for the first time the extraordinary fate of the young man. From Troy, the Ashmores moved in 1871, or 1872, to Richmond, Indiana, and a year or two later to the vicinity of Quincy, Illinois, where Mr. Ashmore bought a farm and lived on it. At some little distance from the farmhouse was a spring with a constant flow of clear, cold water, whence the family derived its supply for domestic use at all seasons. On the evening of the ninth of November, 1878, at about nine o'clock, young Charles Ashmore left the family circle about the hearth, took a tin bucket, and started toward the spring. As he did not return, the family became uneasy, and, going to the door by which he had left the house, his father called without receiving an answer. He then lighted a lantern, and with the eldest daughter, Martha, who insisted on accompanying him, went in search. A light snow had fallen, obliterating the path, but making the young man's trail conspicuous. Each footprint was clearly defined. After going a little more than halfway, perhaps seventy-five yards, the father, who was in advance, halted, 
and elevating his lantern stood peering intently into the darkness ahead what is the matter father the girl asked this was the matter the trail of the young man had abruptly ended and all beyond was smooth unbroken snow the last footprints were as conspicuous as any in the line the very nail marks were distinctly visible mr ashmore looked upward shading his eyes with his hat held between them and the lantern the stars were shining there was no cloud in the sky he was denied the explanation which had suggested itself doubtful as it would have been a new snowfall with a limit so plainly defined taking a wide circuit round the ultimate tracks so as to leave them undisturbed for further examination the man proceeded to the spring the girl following weak and terrified neither had spoken a word of what both observed the spring was covered with ice hours old returning to the house they noted the appearance of the snow on both sides of the trail its entire length no tracks led away from it the morning light showed nothing more smooth spotless unbroken the shallow snow lay everywhere four days later the grief-stricken mother herself went to the spring for water she came back and related that in passing the spot where the footprints had ended she had heard the voice of her son and had been eagerly calling to him wandering about the place as she had fancied the voice to be now in one direction now in another until she was exhausted with fatigue and emotion questioned as to what the voice had said she was unable to tell yet averred that the words were perfectly distinct in a moment the entire family was at the place but nothing was heard and the voice was believed to be an hallucination caused by the mother's great anxiety and her disordered nerves but for months afterwards at irregular intervals of a few days the voice was heard by several members of the family and by others all declared it was unmistakably the voice of charles ashmore all agreed that it seemed to come from a great distance faintly yet with entire distinctness of articulation yet none could determine its direction nor repeat its words the intervals of silence grew longer and longer the voice fainter and fainter and by midsummer it was heard no more if anyone knows the fate of charles ashmore it is probably his mother she is dead the end, the end of, of charles, charles ashmore's, ashmore's trail, trail by, by ambrose, ambrose Pierce. Pierce. okay what i found quite interesting about that story in particular of all of the ones that i'm going to to share with you today is the amount of um telling that exists every creative writing course that i've ever done talks about how you should show and not tell. But that story in particular, I felt told us a lot of things that was going, that, that was happening, um, a lot of things that were happening during the story. We were being narrated the story. And I feel like show don't 
tell is actually a relatively modern rule. Because if we look at a lot of Victorian literature, we are told what's happening. There's a lot of almost journalism that goes on in Victorian uh, fiction, in Gothic fiction. And part of that perhaps is to keep up the suspense, to, um, to, to make sure that the reader doesn't know what's going on. Because if we had followed Charles, we'd have known what happens to him. And part of the part of the reason uh, that the the story works is that we don't know. So it might be quite interesting. I've just thought this because Cratchers has texted in. Good morning to you. Uh, and he said, I use his story and arrest as inspiration for GCSE creative writing classes. Students usually have to reread it after the twist. Now, I like that very much. Um, I love using stories as inspiration for other stories, because as a writer, I get inspired by the stuff that I read all the time. Uh, we all do. We all do. Uh, there's the famous adage, there is no such thing as an original story. Everything is just a retelling of something else. And so I love the idea of, of using stories, particularly these, these public domain ones that we have easy access to, and having our students either be inspired by it, or I wonder if we could have them retell it. Uh, fan fiction, I suppose where they could take a, a story that is told but not shown and rewrite it for a modern audience in a show but don't tell way. Could we follow the mother as she tried to find out what happened to her son and then end that story with, with her death? Could we follow the father as he explores what's going on? Um, I think there are all sorts of things that you can do with, with transforming these works. We talk a lot in, in literature, in literary studies, about transformative works, about taking something that one person has come up with and changing it, reworking it, so that it works in a different way for a different audience. Um, I think, um, particularly if you're teaching creative writing, this at this time of year will be a, a really interesting thing to do. Next, we are going to look at a story by H.P. Lovecraft. Now, you can't do a show, in my opinion, on Gothic, Victorian, Edwardian horror and spookiness without mentioning Lovecraft. But of course, we do have to be careful. So H.P. Lovecraft, Howard Phillips Lovecraft, was an American writer who, who specialised in weird really. That was kind of what he went for. He went for the weird. And he came up with what I consider to be an amazing world in which his stories were set. I think his world building is fantastic. Um, like many of his contemporaries, he didn't give us a lot of detail, uh, which might seem um, antithetical to the idea of world building, but he gave us enough that we could imagine what was going on, that we could see what was going on. And everything that he wrote kind of exists within the same universe. Uh, now, I'm going to confess, one of my, my aspirations as a writer is to have my own universe of interconnected, interlinking stories. I think that would be, I think that would be amazing. Uh, you know, in the same way that with, with Marvel films, we've got the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, in Star Wars, there is the, I think they call it the extended universe. You know, so many properties these days have that where everything is interlinked. Um, and I think as a writer, that's that's one of the most exciting things that you can do 
is to construct, to create this whole uh, reality. The unfortunate thing about H.P. Lovecraft, uh, and this is brought up in lots of discourse about his writing, is exactly how um, racist it can be, how full of stereotypes it can be, um, and, and even beyond stereotypes, that there, there is in his stories what we would now consider to be overt racism. There are arguments about whether the extent to which his works touch on these racist ideas were typical for his time, or whether he himself was particularly extreme. And I, I think that as with any writer, and Tim and I in fact touched on this way, way back in August when we did our show on children's literature, um, it is difficult to separate author from works. And where you have a work that is within itself containing racist ideas, racist language, racist stereotypes, of course, you would not dream of sharing that with anybody. You know, you, I, I don't think anybody would even think of, of sharing those stories. Where you have a writer who has perhaps shared that ideology, but you have a work that doesn't necessarily, then you need to use your own discretion, I suppose, and figure out where your personal comfort lies with endorsing uh, that author. Um, now, I personally do not agree with um, most of Lovecraft's views, to be honest, certainly not any of his views towards race or sexuality. Um, but I do think that his writing is skillful. And as somebody who is interested in literature, I have to figure out the extent to which I can I can separate an admiration for skillful writing from an abhorrence of views that were held. So with Lovecraft, I, I am choosing to, to make that separation today. Um, I reserve the right to change my mind, and maybe in a future show, I might talk about um, how I, I can't endorse him any longer. Um, but for today, because I think it's very difficult to do a show about, um, about horror without mentioning him, we are going to, to hear one of his stories today. We're going to hear The Terrible Old Man. The Terrible Old Man by H.P. Lovecraft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Gantz. The Terrible Old Man by H.P. Lovecraft. It was the design of Angelo Ricci and Joe Zanuck and Manuel Silva to call on the terrible old man. This old man dwells all alone in a very ancient house on Water Street near the sea, and is reputed to be both exceedingly rich and exceedingly feeble, which forms a situation very attractive to men of the professions of Messrs. Ricci, Zanuck, and Silva, for that profession was nothing less dignified than a robbery. 
The inhabitants of Kingsport say and think many things about the terrible old man which generally keep him safe from the attention of gentlemen like Mr. Ricci and his colleagues. Despite the almost certain fact that he hides a fortune of indefinite magnitude somewhere about his musty and venerable abode, he is, in truth, a very strange person, believed to have been a captain of East India clipper ships in his day, so old that no one can remember when he was young, and so taciturn that few know his real name. Among the gnarled trees in the front yard of his aged and neglected place he maintains a strange collection of large stones, oddly grouped and painted so that they resemble the idols in some obscure eastern temple. This collection frightens away most of the small boys who love to taunt the terrible old man about his long white hair and beard or to break the small-paned windows of his dwelling with wicked missiles. But there are other things which frighten the older and more curious folk who sometimes steal upon the house to peer in through the dusty panes. These folks say that on a table in a bare room on the ground floor are many peculiar bottles, in each a small piece of lead suspended pendulum-wise from a string. And they say that the terrible old man talks to these bottles, addressing them by such names as Jack, Scarface, Long Tom, Spanish Joe, Peters, and Mate Ellis, and that whenever he speaks to a bottle, the little lead pendulum within makes certain definite vibrations as if in answer. Those who have watched the tall, lean, terrible old man in these peculiar conversations do not watch him again. But Angelo Ricci and Joe Zanuck and Manuel Silva were not of Kingsport blood. They were of that new and heterogeneous alien stock which lies outside the charmed circle of New England life and traditions and they saw in the terrible old man merely a tottering, almost helpless gray beard, who could not walk without the aid of his knotted cane, and whose thin, weak hands shook pitifully. They were really quite sorry in their way for the lonely, unpopular old fellow, whom everybody shunned and at whom all the dogs barked singularly. But business is business and to a robber whose soul is in his profession, there is a lure and a challenge about a very old and very feeble man who has no account at the bank, and who pays for his few necessities at the village store with Spanish gold and silver minted two centuries ago. Messrs. Ricci, Zanuck, and Silva selected the night of April 11th for their call. Mr. Ricci and Mr. Silva were to interview the poor old gentleman, whilst Mr. Zanuck waited for them and their presumable metallic burden with a covered motor-car in Ship Street, by the gate in the tall rear wall of their host's grounds. Desire to avoid needless explanations in case of unexpected police intrusions prompted these plans for a quiet and unostentatious departure. As prearranged, the three adventurers started out separately in order to prevent any evil-minded suspicions afterward. Messrs. Ricci and Silva met in Water Street by the old man's front gate, 
and although they did not like the way the moon shone down upon the painted stones through the budding branches of the gnarled trees, they had more important things to think about than mere idle superstition. They feared it might be unpleasant work making the terrible old man loquacious concerning his hoarded gold and silver, for aged sea captains are notably stubborn and perverse. Still, he was very old and very feeble, and there were two visitors. Messrs. Ricci and Silva were experienced in the art of making unwilling persons voluble, and the screams of a weak and exceptionally venerable man can be easily muffled. So they moved up to the one lighted window and heard the terrible old man talking childishly to his bottles with pendulums. Then they donned masks and knocked politely at the weather-stained oaken door. Waiting seemed very long to Mr. Zanuck, as he fidgeted restlessly in the covered motor-car by the terrible old man's back gate in Ship Street. He was more than ordinarily tender-hearted, and he did not like the hideous screams he had heard in the ancient house just after the hour appointed for the deed. Had he not told his colleagues to be as gentle as possible with the pathetic old sea captain? Very nervously he watched that narrow oaken gate in the high and ivy-clad stone wall. Frequently he consulted his watch and wondered at the delay. Had the old man died before revealing where his treasure was hidden, and a thorough search become necessary? Mr. Zanuck did not like to wait so long in the dark in such a place. Then he sensed a soft tread or tapping on the walk inside the gate, heard a gentle fumbling at the rusty latch, and saw the narrow, heavy door swing inward. And in the pallid glow of the single dim street lamp he strained his eyes to see what his colleagues had brought out of that sinister house which loomed so close behind. But when he looked, he did not see what he had expected, for his colleagues were not there at all, but only the terrible old man leaning quietly on his knotted cane and smiling hideously. Mr. Zanuck had never before noticed the color of that man's eyes. Now he saw that they were yellow. Little things make considerable excitement in little towns which is the reason that Kingsport people talked all that spring and summer about the three unidentifiable bodies, horribly slashed as with many cutlasses, and horribly mangled as by the tread of many cruel boot-heels, which the tide washed in. And some people even spoke of things as trivial as the deserted motor-car found in Ship Street, or certain especially inhuman cries, probably of a stray animal or migratory bird, heard in the night by wakeful citizens. But in this idle village gossip the terrible old man took no interest at all. He was by nature reserved, and when one is aged and feeble one's reserve is doubly strong. Besides, so ancient a sea captain must have witnessed scores of things much more stirring in the far-off days of his unremembered youth. End of the Terrible Old Man
one of the things that I love about doing stories with classes is performing them myself. Um, I am a performer. That is kind of how I, I define myself, I think. And I love nothing more than, than sitting down and reading uh, my stories to a class and, and kind of going all out with it. I think it's it's honestly the thing that I like best about the, the Gothic literature that I do in Year 9 French that I mentioned earlier is when I can put on some, some spooky um, background music through YouTube. I can turn on some LED candles uh, and I can just set an atmosphere before I read each story in each lesson. But there is nothing more frustrating when you're doing that than when the fire alarm goes off or when there is a knock at the door because a teacher needs to speak to you or it needs to borrow one of the students or you're halfway through and somebody puts their hand up and asks if they can go to the toilet. So by using these audiobooks, by, by using recordings, you can kind of mitigate that. Because particularly if you work in a school that has a one-to-one -one device policy, as more and more schools now do, you can share the, the book around, particularly if you are using an open source uh, website such as LibriVox, which is where I got these from today, um, or even if you've recorded it yourself. So during lockdown, um, I sat, because the first lockdown in England happened uh, during that, that summer term when I do the Gothic stories with Year 9. So I took an afternoon and I sat down and I recorded videos of myself reading all of the units um, in 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 that pack, all of the stories. And I recorded them and I put some background music to it. And it, it didn't come out as well as it would have had I read them with the students but it was the next best thing. But actually what I found is having those recordings even now is very helpful because it means that if there is a lesson, for example, that a student misses, they can go back and listen to that recording and they won't miss the story. If there is a day that I might be out sick during that term, then my cover teacher can play the recording if there is a day where for whatever reason i just need them to work independently while i do something different then i can have them listen to the recording on their device and then carry on with the activities so there are actually all kinds of benefits to having them listen to a an, a recording that already exists in the case of foreign languages it also gets them used to hearing different people different accents, different ways of speaking, because of course students get used to our syntax, our preferred vocabulary, our intonation, our pronunciation, and it's very important for them to hear how other people do it. In English and in drama, it's very important for them to get used to other performers and understanding that the way a performer chooses to put cadence on certain words or certain phrases will will and can completely alter the audience's understanding of a text. Sometimes it's more interesting for them to listen to somebody else speak instead of just you for a very long time. One of the reasons that I am sharing the, the LibriVox stories with you today is so that you're not just listening to me read you stories for an hour and a half. I would have done that quite happily, 
Um, but I don't know whether that would have been particularly interesting for you guys as an audience. And it also allows you as the teacher to have a break. Because if you've got a full day of seven lessons, which is just story after story after story after story, at some point your voice is going to begin to give out. Or at some point your enthusiasm is going to wane. And that's not fair on the students who are arriving for that lesson, where you're not quite as into it as you could be. So again, having somebody else read out, having something for them to listen to, even something that you have prepared, just gives you that little bit of a break. And as, as friends of the show know, I am very much in favour of teacher self-care. I very much believe that we need to give each other breaks where we can. So far, we have heard two stories by male authors. Male authors do tend to make up the canon um, in Gothic literature. So we're now going to turn to a female writer and we are going to listen to The Reaper by Dorothy Easton. The Reaper by Dorothy Easton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Dale Grothman. The Reaper by Dorothy Easton. Millgate was a rich farmer, owning his own machines, not like those poorer, smaller men who hired an engine from a neighbor. He has his reaping machine, a red and yellow Walter Wood Cleveland brand. Every morning now, as soon as it's dry enough, about nine o'clock, the engine starts, and from the farmer's manor house, its heavy, drowsy sounds are heard. For those on the machine, the noise is harder. The only human sound that penetrates it is the old conductor's oi to the driver if the canvas sticks or if weeds are making a block. Then the young man in front slows his engine down and wipes his forehead with his hand. Reaping goes on until nine at night. No strange man sits on the reaper, but one of Millgate's best men the most trustworthy, the most faithful, the wagoner. A man well over sixty, with side whiskers, gray eyes, a long nose, and a forehead and chin carved out of granite. On his head a flat, wide-awake hat. On his bent back a white jacket. When he speaks his mouth moves sideways first. There's always a spot of dried blood on his lip. When he smiles, a tooth stump appears like an ancient fossil. He talks slowly, stopping to spit now and then. Every day of his life, he gets up at half-past three. Now, mounted on the high iron seat, a crumpled sack for a saddle, he rides like some old charioteer, a Hercules with great bowed back, head jutting out, chin straight a hard, weathered look about his face, and in his heart, disgust. This year, for the first time, they are using a motor engine to pull a reaper around instead of horses. He lived for his horses. He's the wagoner, and they are his job. If one falls ill, he sleeps with it. He believes in horses. 
but speaking of the motor he says she's all right when she's all right with a look that ends the sentence for him in his youth he had reaped with a scythe this walter wood is a neat arrangement you can't deny that one bit of the mechanism works as a divider while a big light kind of wooden windmill arrangement continually revolving beats the corn down into a flat pan from which it's carried on a canvas slide up an incline then shot over and down the other side in a continual long flat stream like yellow matting and then the needle the threadle as he calls it nips in somewhere binding the flat masses into separate neat round sheaves pitched out every few moments with perfect precision by a three-pronged iron fork above the one big heavy central wheel the charioteer is shaken and jolted from nine till nine in front on another iron seat by the box-like engine the driver works behind runs a red-faced laborer clearing corners the motor has to run out the full length of its cogged iron wheel bands before it can turn and the sheaves dropped on the last round get in the way so at every corner they have to be lifted and set back the laborer clears then runs after the machine now halfway up the field stops at the next corner stoops once more to lift and shift three sheaves then runs again this laborer was a man of forty with a face as naive as a boy of fifteen though getting bald his eyes were young his mouth loose untrained as a child's he's touched as we say and had never really grown up he slept in the attic ate in the kitchen and worked but was not responsible he was always given light jobs walking with the clappers weeding cleaning styes clearing his greatest friend was a boy of twelve on sundays they'd laugh for an hour at nothing going to the coast for the first time last year he was so taken by a punch and judy show that he never saw the sea his smile was the most ridiculous thing in the world he blushed continually panted grinned like some boy caught kissing and was always apologetic lightning made him hide his head and he was afraid of engines their regularity upset him running behind the reaper this quick-moving noisy thing smelling of oil made up of sliding chains appalled him there were five wheels at an angle and all the time an oil-wet black flat chain band ran around over them underneath the heavy central wheel ran round and round to the imbecile the wagoner's courage appeared supernatural there should have been another man to take two corners but all hands were wanted so the laborer had to run all day it was hot no wind no shade if he looked up for a moment the hills and distant elms appeared bright blue the big field itself was ablaze with color wheat like brown burnt amber poppies small white daisies thistles 
when the engines stopped the only sounds were plaintive anxious bird calls from the center of the field sometimes a rabbit or hare looked out then bolted back once five graceful sleek brown pheasants ran out toward the hedge then lost their nerve turned and went running back the sun shone steadily sheaves picked up by the laborer made his hands smell oily their string band raised a blister on his forefinger very often he grabbed hold of nettles and sharp thistles and the backs of his hands were swollen and covered with stings blue butterflies twirled in front of his face pale moths flew out when his hat fell off he had no time to get it the sweat ran down his egg-shaped forehead to his long square hairy chin though he could shave himself on sundays he looked a little like a monkey when the engine stuck the wagoner asked in his slow flat voice won't she speak she's not coming out was the youth's reply once the driver was thrown up a foot when the motor went over a hole he yelled men are often killed by the reaper the imbecile got the startled look of a child seeing snakes at the zoo each time the engine snorted or the wagoner called out oi a spurt of water ran down his spine the blood was beating in his head the sun shone mercilessly on his pale bald patch the field began to bounce before his eyes bloodshot from stooping when the yards of bindweed shackled the machinery the wagoner just turned his head a sign for the laborer who had to run had to catch and tear away the long green chains full of small pink flowers by four o'clock they were overtaking him before he got round the driver had to turn more sharply the canvas stuck don't you do that again the old wagoner scolded with stern eye you'll turn us over the engine stuck when they tried to start it again for half an hour the young driver tinkered with the tools from the box unscrewing small oily nuts testing wires feeling levers and in desperation wiped his black dripping hands on his hair twenty times he turned the starting handle but she wouldn't speak then suddenly with a sound like a pistol shot the engine fired the machine ran backward upsetting the laborer and before he could move the central wheel ran over his ankles when the imbecile came to himself they were still at the corner his feet were tied up in a jacket he was suffering horribly yet seemed unable to focus it but seeing the red and yellow reaper standing close beside his head some memory soaked his face with sweat he fainted brandy was fetched they lifted him onto a hurdle when he recovered again the whole group were still at the corner his employer stood there stout well-dressed and anxious in his gray felt hat dark coat and trousers the driver stood there too and the old wagoner corn was still up in the middle of the field the laborer looked surprised at seeing sky before him as a rule when he started he saw fields he turned his face 
the men watching saw his round boyish eyes project at sight of something red and wet and sticky like the mess they made out sheep killing splashing on the stubble while two broken boots lay oozing the same stuff in a large pool of it following this look the old wagoner said slowly er my boy them are yours tears were running down his stiff dry cheeks how do you feel asked the farmer his laborer blushed then whispered to the wagoner what's happening mr collard why you've a lost your feet for yet another minute the imbecile lay panting shy self-conscious under his master's eye until the idea struck him once more whispering to the wagoner he said help me up i'll go home will he you can't walk said the old man simply you can't walk no more the black hair stiffened suddenly on the idiot's chin he had understood that in those bleeding mangled boots his feet were lying he began to cry and then catching sight of his master smiled as though to apologize the end of the reaper by dorothy easton now that's a story that i personally would not use in class only because of the ableism that it includes although there would be an interesting discussion to use um, in a level english language if you were choosing to do that about the semantic shift of the words imbecile and idiot that occur quite frequently throughout that story and the idea that they used to be used to refer to people with very specific needs um, and are now used as generic insults and kind of um, what that means what that means for for english as it uh, as it changes it will come as no surprise to any regular listener that my favorite spooky story ever comes from ancient rome it is in fact one of the first horror stories that we still have um that we still have evidence of and it came in a letter by pliny the younger and i'm going to read this one to you to finish our show off i'm going to read a, a short extract in latin just to, to set the tone and then i'm going to read from my own translation uh, which was published by the classics library in 2015. Erat Atenis patiosa et carpax domus, sed infamis et pestilens. Per silentium noctis sonus feri, et si attenderes acrius, strepitus vinocrorum longius primo, de inde e proximo redebatur. Mox apparebat idolon, sen ex macie et squalore confectus. Promissa barba horenti capillo, cruribus compendes, manibus catenas, gerebat quatiabetque. In Athens, there was a large and spacious house. Unfortunately, 
it had a reputation as if it were filled with pestilence. You see, in the dead of night, a noise like the crashing of iron could be heard. Perhaps it was the rattling of chains. At first, the noise seemed to be far in the distance, but it would gradually get closer and closer. Suddenly, an old man would appear from nowhere, filthy and emaciated, with a wild beard and hair that looked as if it had been blown by the wind. The chains which had signalled his approach bound his feet and hands. The people who lived in the house spent many a sleepless night terrorised by things we can only imagine. This lack of sleep began to drive them mad as they fell victim to disease and eventually to death. Even during the day, when the noises could not be heard and the apparition could not be seen, the fear remained and eventually the remaining inhabitants fled leaving the house deserted and damned. However, in the hope that money could be raised, the house was put up for sale. It so happened that the philosopher Athen Athenodorus came to Athens, and needing somewhere to stay, he read the posted advertisement. The cheap price raised his suspicions, so the vendor was honest with him and told him all about the ghost and the madness of the previous occupants. But this didn't put Athenodorus off. In fact, he was eager to take the house and made preparations to move in immediately. As the evening drew in, he set himself up in the front section of the house. In order to keep his heart and his mind from dwelling on imaginary noises and movements from the corner of his eye, he focused all of his energy on his writing. So, he requested a light and some materials to write with, and then he dismissed his servants. At first, the house was silent. Then came the rattling of the chains. At first, Athenodorus refused to be distracted, but the noise got louder and louder and came closer and closer until it seemed to be by the door. And then, in the room with him. Athenodorus looked round and he saw the gnarled ghost of the old man exactly as the vendor had described beckoning to him. Again, Athenodorus refused to be distracted and signalled to the ghost that it should wait until his writing was finished. However, the ghost would not be halted and began to shake its chains over Athenodorus's head. Athenodorus could ignore the ghost no longer and, taking up his lamp, he followed the slow-moving apparition into the courtyard where it vanished. Now completely alone, Athenodorus marked the spot where the ghost had vanished with a handful of grass. The next day, Athenodorus summoned the magistrate, who ordered that the spot be dug up. Interred and wrapped in chains, they found a pile of bones, the only remnants of a body which had been long since buried. Very carefully, the skeletal remains were collected and given a public burial with the appropriate prayers and supplications. And never again did the old man visit that Athenian house. What intrigues me about that story is that Pliny the Younger presents it in his letters as fact. It was a story that he heard, but it's presented as if it was something that actually happened. We don't know whether he believed that it happened, and we don't know um, whether he had heard it as a true story, or whether he were perhaps just presenting it in a way that were factual in order to heighten the scary experience. 
But what I quite like, and as I say um, in, in my translation, is that it contains a lot of the tropes that we still see in modern horror. We've got the ghosts, we've got the haunted house, we've got the chains, we've got the idea of the haunting disappearing when the body had been appropriately laid to rest. And that, I think, is ultimately my favourite thing about these spooky stories and about, about ghost literature, is it shows that even if we go back 2,000 years, people still wanted to be scared, and people were still scared by the same things. If you are doing anything for Halloween this weekend, I hope you have a great time. If you are not, I hope you have a great weekend anyway. Uh, Flora is on the Twitter spaces at 11 o'clock, so please do tune in for her. And I will see you next week. As always, I thank you for listening.